the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. It's Wednesday, August 10th and on today's show we'll have a roundup of the latest news with the Irish Times business team. Later I'll be joined by Jamie Mackin from sponsorship agency Livewire to talk about the Olympics, the state of the Irish sponsorship market and what brands get in return for their big spending on sport. But first, I'm joined in the studio by Irish Times business journalists Barry O'Halloran and Mark Paul to talk about some of the stories of the week. And we're going to start with perhaps a relatively good news story, and that's the new figures showing Dublin Airport is the fastest growing major airport in Europe, while Tourism Ireland has also declared that it expects a record-breaking year for growth in overseas visitors, following a 13% rise in visitors in the first half of the year. So, Barry, as our aviation expert, you were writing this week about the Dublin Airport Authority's uh, formal seeking of bids to construct a second runway at Dublin Airport. And given our recent surge in, in tourism, is this project becoming more and more critical? It, it, it would appear to. Um, there, there's no question but that the, the growth of Dublin Airport has been has been spectacularly rapid in, in the, the last few years. In 2014, Nobody expected the the airport to hit the 25 million mark before the year 2020. It's now hit that. It is looking uh, dangerous, like it could veer dangerously close, if you like, to 28 million this year. I mean, there are 13 million passengers have used that airport so far this year. So we're not only heading to a point where we need a new runway, but we're um, or we've not only overtaken the point where we we effectively need a new runway. There, we're also now veering close to the point where we may also need a new terminal, a terminal three. So think about the sort of row that that could actually uh, spark off for those were, were that to get underway. So you looked uh, almost positively gleeful there at the thought of a million stories about uh, a possible Terminal 3. Uh, but how far away are we from that, given uh, that the, you know, we haven't even selected the constructor for, <laughs> for the second runway? Um, well, the, 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 there's talk that 30 million would be the, the trigger for that. The, the rate of growth at the airport is obviously it has slowed it has slowed slightly on last year and you know it, it, it would have to it's impossible to see it maintaining that kind of momentum um, for you know over a period of years but certainly if you were to hit 27 and a half which I think on the basis of current trends is is very achievable now for Dublin Airport then you, you would actually you know you can see 30 million you know coming up you know edging up over the horizon and you would have to start thinking in the direction of a, of of a third terminal but even so i mean obviously the new runway is is a big project and that still has to get over one uh, uh, one last planning hurdle and that is a lifting of a condition restricting night flights there something that uh, residents in the area are very very adamant that they want honored to the to the last full stop as well so uh, what's the time scale on the second runway? Well, they'd be hoping to name the, the, the main contractor, the, the, the organisation that would be responsible for the body of the work sometime possibly in the first four months of next year. There should be a commencement notice issued and in theory at least we should be turning the first sod 
are doing something, you know, some of the, the initial work should be underway by the end of June uh, 2017. And you would be looking then at a 2020 completion date and you'd start commissioning it then at that point, making sure that everything works. Because, you know, with the runway, there are a whole lot of things there. There are, there are lights, there are navigational aids, safety, all that. You've got to make sure that all that works before you actually start uh, opening it for use. Okay, Mark, um, the tourism industry uh, has been calling for the marketing body, uh, Tourism Ireland, to be rewarded for some of their recent successes by being given a much higher budget um, so they can better compete, I suppose, with this pool of international visitors that are available. Is there a case for this, do you think? Well, look, the tourism industry, um, I think, over the last number of years has, you know, it's it's, it's become quite reliant on state help in one sense um, because... Um, you know, a lot of the outside marketing is done by the state via Tourism Ireland. They've got a special VAT rate, um, which is paid for by uh, by which is originally paid for by taking money from people's pension pots. Um, so it, it it gets a lot of help to tourism industry, but it would argue that it delivers a lot in jobs. Um, like if you look at the numbers that Tourism Ireland came out with this morning in their mid year review for this year, I mean, there's been a a thirteen percent increase, as you said, in, in overseas visitor numbers so far this year. That's half a million more tourists than this time last year. But you know, there are there are problems on the horizon too. I think perhaps the industry is a little bit complacent about the effect of the UK market. I mean, that's 40% of the entire tourism market is UK. And with Brexit, Ireland has just become 10% more expensive overnight. Now, in the first uh, uh, in the first six months of the year, UK visitor numbers to Ireland were up 16%. Um, um, and that would have been uh, uh, you know, before the Brexit vote, or sorry, there was one week I think of post-Brexit included in that. Um, but if that, you know, if Ireland becoming ten percent more expensive overnight has much of an impact, and we don't know yet how much of an impact that's going to have, um, you know, that could that could completely skew the figures for the second half, and and this rate of growth might be sustainable. So what the tourism industry uh, has been arguing from the government is that look, we need more money for for for, for marketing abroad. They think that 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 the targets that have been set by the state, um, which are effectively, a, a, you know, an extra 2% a year of, of, of spending by uh, foreign tourists in Ireland every year until 2025, they think that's a little bit too low. They think that um, if it was any, any other industry like media or technology or something like that, that, that you know, a government setting those sort of targets would be seen as too conservative and, you know, why should tourism have to cope with no targets like that? Perhaps they're right. Um, but, you know, as always, they're seeking state help to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, there are arguments against the VAT rate even that, you know, with the budget coming up, um, um, that you know, there are arguments that perhaps the VAT rate should go back to where it was, and that you know the rest of the economy shouldn't subsidise a booming tourism industry. Um, um, so um, there's a there, there's a lot to consider for the tourism industry. The numbers are good at the moment on paper, but there are problems coming over the horizon. I mean, I think it's probably you know agreed that they've had some creative success, I would say, with their with their marketing, with things like Wild Atlantic Way, you know, not forgetting Ireland's ancient east. And of course, that place that uh, Luke Skywalker has been hanging out for all these decades, uh, Skellig, uh, you know, they've, 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 they've capitalised on screen tourism, both through that and, and through through Game of Thrones, of course, up, up, in, up in Northern Ireland. Um, but it's one of those things, isn't it, tourism marketing, that no matter how creative you are, ultimately, uh, you know, your numbers are really dependent on how uh, the economies, the international economies are faring. And that includes, of course, currency trends. I, as I, mentioned. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, people in tourism Ireland, I'm sure they do a fine job and, and, and they'll be sitting around looking at these figures, um, and, you know, clapping each other on the back. But the reality is that the reason that Ireland's tourism has boomed over the last number of years is because 
um, um, of currency fluctuations um, because it became cheaper for US tourists to come here um, when the price of the euro, because uh, you know tourism is a pure export. Um, so when our currency weakens, when the euro weakens, it becomes cheaper for people abroad. And uh, uh, during the financial crisis, the euro plummeted to near nothing. Um, so um, it became much cheaper for US tourists to visit here. That's why we got loads of US tourists, not necessarily just because of all the brilliant marketing. Um, and the same with uh, with Sterling, and now we're getting the opposite effect after Brexit. So, um, you know, like they, 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 they can market and, 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 uh, and, and you know, uh, encourage whatever TV shows um, um, they can to come here, but really there are greater macroeconomic effects that affect tourism. Barry, um, Tourism Ireland was uh, noting that a number of new routes to uh, Ireland has been a significant contributing factor to growth. And of course, uh, Ryanair was one of the most anti-Brexit uh, companies in the run-up to the referendum and uh, the most disappointed afterwards. Um, but, you know, how critical is it that we, we maintain the access um, to Britain in particular? It's extremely critical, um, and that's a very good point, Laura, because, you know, tourists don't swim here, by and large they fly. Uh, a portion of them come on ferries, but air access is um, is, the, is the, the means of getting here, and I think four out of five of them are roughly that proportion come in via Dublin Airport as well. Um, and I, I think that there's an argument for focusing some effort on um, developing both Cork and Shannon, uh, now both of them, both airports have been working on that, but I think they're, 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 I think more of a focus, more of a focus on both, more new routes. There is the possibility of transatlantic routes into, of more transatlantic routes into Shannon and Cork, and I think that would, that would equally help to to boost, uh, boost the numbers coming in. Mark is quite right, in the sense that you know it has to be cheap, it has to be competitive, but I think our competitiveness is something that we can manage ourselves. Um, and I think that, quite frankly, I think that the tourist industry could do better on this front. Um, it has the 9% VAT break, yet we, we, we are seeing the cost of actually holidaying here creeping back up, the cost of eating out here, the cost of drinking here. All those things come into play as well. And I think that, you know, the, the tourist industry and that that is the individual businesses who make up the tourist industry, not some sort of amorphous block that's out there. They can be very much masters of their own destiny in this respect and control their costs and resist the, the temptation to overcharge tourists when they're here. Okay, we'll move on now to another story of the week. And Mark, this is another story that straddles both sides of the Irish Sea. You were reporting on the Irish soccer stars who uh, face the spectre of large tax bills after UK tax authorities uh, won a landmark case about the tax treatment of film finance deals. Can you tell us a bit more about who's involved in this and, and, and why, why it's come about? Um, there's a, a UK company called uh, Ingenious Media um, that has been in operation for many years and sort of between about 2000 and three onwards, 2003 to 2008 or nine, um, it set up a lot of film finance partnerships, um, 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 which were effectively uh, limited liability partnerships. And they went out and got investors for these partnerships who were um, um, people in the, in the worlds of, of media, entertainment and sport, very famous people, people with a lot of ready cash. Um, and so these investors would, would put money into these schemes and these schemes would then be used to finance the making of Hollywood blockbusters um, or, or independent movies. Some of the movies that were financed under these ingenious schemes were uh, Avatar, Life of Pi, um, Die Hard 4, um, Hot Fuzz, uh, Hotel Rwanda, um, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, 
you know, big movies um, that did well at the box office. Um, but the UK Taxman, uh, or, or HM Revenue and Customs, uh, to give it its formal title, um, became interested in these schemes because um, these schemes were claiming losses, heavy losses um, for the investors, which the investors are then u- using to offset against their other income. And they probably thought, hey, I mean, wait a minute, Avatar, that was pretty successful, right? Well, 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 yeah, well av- Avatar was the flag for it. And, and, and when, I, when I was in contact with um, the UK tax authorities um, the other day and, 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 and emailed, they used the word absurd to describe how anybody who, who invested in Avatar could have made a loss because, because uh, this is one of, the, you know, one of the most successful movies uh, of the last number of decades. What happened was um, the investors in these schemes uh, and these schemes, they recognised huge losses up front and early on. Um, so and, uh, they put up 30% of the cost of making a film and then the other 70% would be borrowed. But the tax relief seemed to have been claimed in the whole 100% and they would recognise some sort of a loss early on. Um, and uh, uh, the investors in these schemes then were a lot of football players. So um, uh, John O'Shea, uh, the Sunderland player who, uh, and, 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 and Ireland player. Um, Robbie Keane, who's now at LA Galaxy, but he would have been with Tottenham Hotspur, I think, at the time. Um, Martin O'Neill is now the Irish manager. He would have been the manager of Aston Villa at the time. Um, Dennis Irwin played for Manchester United at the time. He was an investor. Clinton Morrison played for Ireland. Um, David O'Leary, who who would have been an investor of these schemes, although I don't think he, he wouldn't have played for anybody at the time. But there were other 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 well-known uh, uh, British celebrities. Um, there was at least three Spice Girls involved. Um, uh, Mel C. Sixty um, percent of the of Spice Girls. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Mel C. <coughs> um, uh, Victoria Beckham and Jerry Hollywell. Um, uh, Peter Gabriel. And um, there was uh, Chubby Chandler, who's a well-known golf agent. Uh, David May, another footballer. Um, um, Jeremy Paxman, uh, Kate Aidy. So there were journalists, oh journalists, journalists and broadcasters involved as well. So these people were all putting money into these schemes. Are you saying schemes. that journalism, journalists and broadcasters have money to put into film finance yeah, I do, yeah, yeah. Well, well, clearly broadcast journalists do uh, in the UK. Um, um, I, I didn't see any print journalism names there at all. But um, um, yeah, so they were putting the money into these schemes, presumably on advice and presumably thinking that, that these schemes would work. The, the, the UK tax authorities got a little bit shifty about the sort of losses that were being claimed, thought they were excessive. And the thing ended up at a UK tax tribunal um, and it delivered its judgment last Friday and um, it didn't accept all of the arguments of the UK tax authorities but it accepted the bulk of them um, and it said that the losses claimed were excessive and now it looks like these investors may face um, big tax bills uh, uh, with it possibly with interest and penalties as well. So um, whilst they invested in these schemes um, you know, thinking this is a handy way, perhaps they were thinking this is a handy way to, uh, to shelter some of my income um, from tax, it hasn't worked out brilliantly for them. So it looks like it might be payback time or can they appeal it? Um, the the judgment they can appeal it. Um, um, Ingenious Media, the company that put together these schemes, said it is considering an appeal. Um, now, how much the, the, the sums at play are quite large. Um, there was over the, there were sixty six films made under these schemes, um, uh, including the films that I mentioned before. Um, and the losses claimed on these schemes were one point six million one point six billion pounds. Um, on the basis of that, more than six hundred million pounds in tax was reclaimed by the investors um, and when you add interest and penalties onto it the, the, the tribunal said the figure at play was about £1 billion now not all of that's going to be repaid um, um, they'll go off and they'll, they'll do some sort of a deal I would imagine um, and the tribunal effectively told them to do that one of the last one of the last lines in the entire judgment was listen both sides go away talk about a figure and come back to us Okay Barry have you any uh, take on this story it's a 
Another yeah. uh, tale of tax planning gone wrong, perhaps? Well, it, it, the first thing that struck me is that, uh, who knew the footballers were so good at maths? But um, the, the second thing is, of course, that, well, I would assume that if you've been advised to put your money into a scheme uh, that will help you to avoid tax, and that scheme is then found out to be wrong, um, the, your advisor could well find themselves on the hook for your um uh, for your interest in penalties, should you be of a mind to sue them for it. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, I think it's a great story and I think it's going to run and run. And I think that we could see a few tax advisors facing civil suits down the road from um, ones initiated by some very famous names. Okay. Well, another uh, another saga that has has been running for more than a year now is that of uh, Cleary's department store. So we just the, the way it was very abruptly closed down last year with the loss of 460 jobs and still uh, ramica- ramifications from that decision. Um, but this week, it, there were revelations that one contractor refused to work with the new owners because of how they treated the workers. Um, so Barry, can you tell us who, who are Lamb's Tongue? And what was it that they had to say this week? Okay, Lambstung are an interesting company in in their own right in that they specialise in in the restoration of uh, old steel, timber, and bronze windows. A very specialised area, uh, requiring a fair you know a, a number of, of very specialised skills. They are understood to be, if not the only one of the very few companies on the island of Ireland capable of doing the work that will be required on the old Cleary's building in O'Connell Street. Um, were the the owners to get permission for the the, the scheme uh, for which they've been seeking planning, uh, or which the, you know for which they this sought planning. This is to reopen a new a this new is to retail reopen scheme. The, 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 the the uh, the store as you know a combination of retail offices, hotels, etc. Whatever you're having yourself, and uh, the 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 owner spoke to Lambstone some time ago uh, about this and about their plans, and Lambstone became uncomfortable. Um, as in, in, their, in their own phrase, we're uncomfortable with the way that the former workers in Cleary's store have been treated as 467 people lost their jobs last year, as, a real, uh, as we all know at this stage. And what they said is, look, um, we're not going to work for you, we're not going to get involved unless you meet the... Um, the, the former Cleary's workers, and this is the, the they had been seeking a meeting. Who had been seeking a meeting, and this is the this is the thing. Lambstone aren't really, you know, grabbing any high moral ground in in one sense. All they're saying is, look, you know, we'd work for you if you were to sit down and talk to these people who lost their jobs. That's really all Lambstone have been saying, and, and they they said themselves, look, we don't want to come across as being too pole faced around about this. Um, so th- this is the stance they've taken, and it now appears that they're not going to work on the Cleary's project. Uh, as a result of this stance, they, I think, in response to some sort of rumours themselves, made their position clear on their their Facebook uh, page, page yeah. and um, the the story's kind of gone from there. I mean, I spoke to them uh, at, at the beginning of this week, and it, it did strike me that really what what they're looking for is very is very reasonable and very fair. Um, they are not. Um, they yeah, don't see not, themselves as taking some kind of principled they're stance. They're not asking here. them to yeah. rehire 460 people. No, they're, nothing they're, like they're that. They're asking to, to meet with them over the, the, the terms of, of, of how, how it came to a, a, a sorry end. Yeah, it, that's exactly it. And um, it, it does seem to be a very modest request. Um, it, it, the Lambstongue themselves are disappointed that they won't 
kind of you know have the challenge of working on on a, a big project like Cleary's. But then again, I mean they they have worked on some very very high end stuff in the last few years themselves. So. Um, I suppose you can win them all from that point of view. But it would be interesting to see what other contractors out there will do now in light of all this. That's interesting because, I mean, what kind of response has Lambstone had to its stance? Uh, a very positive one, as you can imagine. A lot of people obviously connected with Cleary's and with Cleary's workers and the Cleary's workers themselves have have said, um, have come out in support of their stance. But a lot of unconnected people have kind of put, given them a thumbs up and said, fair play to you for, for taking a position like this. Um, and Ken Meehan and Lambstone described the, the, the reaction earlier on this week as quite extraordinary. Uh, and, you know, at first glance, does certainly appear to there, there does appear to have been this kind of outpouring of support. Now, I know we're used to outpourings of things in, in this day and age, but this one does seem to stand out all right. Mark, uh, Lambstone's post on Facebook was actually in response to a piece you had written um, about Natrium's uh, Deirdre Foley's claim that the, the, the negative publicity she received uh, about Cleary's was unmerited. Uh, and you took issue with that claim of hers. Uh, can you tell us why that was? Oh, look, I just uh, look. Look, I've, obviously, I've, I've followed the, the, the story um, since it happened, or since since the whole thing happened last June. And and I think what 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 Deirdre Foley said was that um, the, cor- the, the 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 coverage and the negative publicity that she's received is unmerited and distressing. And I'm sure it is unmerited and distressing. Um, but some things in life are self inflicted. Um, and the point that I was making was that if you're going to shut down the best known retailer in the country, and that's what Cleary's was, uh, if you're going to shut it down overnight, now, now just before I, before I go any further, Deirdre Foley would argue that she didn't shut it down; that she sold it for a euro to somebody else who shut it down. But she sold it for a euro to an insolvency practitioner. Um, everybody knew it was going to be shut down. That was the whole point. Um, so if you're going to shut down or, 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 or be involved in a transaction where the, the, the best-known retailer in the country is going to be shut down, that 400-and-something workers are going to be turfed out onto the street, onto the middle of the busiest street in the country, um, where RTE cameras will find them in 20 seconds flat, um, on the same day that a, that a case, that a, a liquidation case is being brought down to, uh, to the High Court, at the same time that a very, very, very... Um, interesting set of circumstances is presented to the High Court in terms of how this happened. Uh, uh, you, I mean, you, do, you, you can't blame yourself. You can, who are you going to blame if you get negative publicity for that? You've got to blame yourself. It's probably the most naive public relations around a deal that I've ever seen in my life. Um, and I, I had an email after I wrote that piece um, where I you know, basically criticised Gerard Foley for saying that it was unmerited and distressing. Uh, I had an email from a former Cleary's worker who's now working, uh, who now, after 35 years uh, of working at Cleary's and now being turfed out in the street, thankfully has a job in a well-known tourist attraction in the city and uh, what he said was that that, that, that he finds it uh, very upsetting when he sees Deirdre Foley say these things because um, um, he said what he finds really embarrassing is that the state had to step in and pay his redundancy payments and he doesn't think that the planning application for Cleary's should be considered until all of those matters are tied up and the state is repaid for its redundancy payments so there's a lot of legacy issues like that and you know sometimes good public relations can solve a lot of these problems before they happen and I think the Cleary's um, uh, closure is a prime example of how um, really if you ignore public relations you ignore a hell of a lot Okay well we'll leave it there thank you very much to Barrier Halloran and to Mark Paul At Irish Life we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow they don't have a pension plan we can help you help them 
Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life September 2014. Now, figures from sponsorship specialists Livewire suggest 4 million was spent on advertising and sponsorship on RTE and TV3 during the Euro 2016 tournament, considerably more than the sum spent during Euro 2012 or the 2014 World Cup. Now, we know sport attracts some of the biggest audiences on television, but why else do companies race to associate their brands with big sporting events? And what can we expect in the Irish sponsorship market in the future? Livewire partner Jamie Macken is here. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a big summer of sport. Is it a big summer for sponsors too? Absolutely. I mean, the very fact that it's a big summer of sport instantly suggests it's a big summer uh, of sport for sponsors of sport. Um, but as you said, spend is up uh, on the Euros. We did a recent report on the Livewire uh, Insiders report on the Euros. And you know, why Why is the spend so significant? And all you have to do, really, if you cut to the chase, is to look at the numbers of people who switch on to watch these events. Um, you know, sponsorship is a, a medium which is a lot more dynamic, I would argue, than some other forms of advertising in that you can reach people on multiple platforms, um, you can engage them on a very deep level, etc. But at the end of the day, numbers matter. And um, when you look at the European Championships, the, the recent uh, numbers were significantly large. I mean, the final... Um, was viewed uh, upwards of 700,000, 800,000 people on RTE. That's for a competition uh, event, I should say, that had no Irish involvement whatsoever. Um, and the Irish Games tipped over a million. And significantly, we know, we all know that sport continues to be the top-watched uh, programmes in Ireland every year. Um, and the market's just getting more competitive. You look at what's happening in the broadcasting space, the likes of uh, TV3, um, UTV, etc. Uh, rights, the, the competition for rights is going to be increasing. Um, and to add to the Euros, obviously we have the Olympics at the moment. Um, we've had uh, golf t- tournaments, the championships with the GEA. I mean, really, it's a, it's a very interesting and exciting time for sponsors who... Um, have the right strategy, who make the right decisions, and most importantly, Laura, who activate properly. It's very easy just to stick your logo on something and hope it's going to do the job, and it won't. You're spending your money in the wrong wrong place if that's going to do a sponsorship. So numbers are important, but you have to use uh, your options very wisely. So it really is as simple as that. You know, we, you know, we often hear about a fragmented media marketing, but sport is the one thing that does bring all the eyeballs together in the one place at the one time. It, from a television point of view, I think there's no question. I mean, live... Live TV viewing um, is—it's a very different place today than it was ten years ago, five years ago, and sport is still the appointment to view live experience, um, and would, you could argue it will continue to be for a considerably long time. Um, but you know, sponsorship in other areas doesn't always have to rely on on television. There's, um, for example, Live Nation would be one of the most successful and one of the biggest uh, rights holders in the market. Um, uh, it's music, it's music mm. festivals, entertainment venues, and they have some of the best commercial relationships in the market, the likes of Heineken and Three and so on. Um, very little of that um, benefit for the brands is around television. Yes, Electric Picnic is broadcast on TV, and etc., but really it's the passion of the fans, the younger audiences, how they engage with those brands across different multiple uh, channels, different platforms, etc. That's where the rewards are for sponsors. Uh, so sport 
plays a massive role, and it's not surprising. Sport makes up, you, you see a lot of figures out there. I don't think anyone really has the answer, but you say it's around 70% of sponsorship spend goes into the sports side of things. Um, and that's on fees. And we see the spend in, in the Irish market in around 150 million a year. Um, so a lot of it goes into sports. And it's the GEA, it's the RFU, it's the FAI predominantly, of course. Um, but there's a lot of other sports out there picking up uh, benefits as well. So are there particular sectors where there are companies you know, vying to get a piece of this action and put their name to a sport? Absolutely. I mean, the economy has been improving. We're in a slightly sort of strange place right now, post-Brexit and et cetera. Um, but not surprisingly, we've seen a good indicator of that is when you see certain sectors scrambling and competing for properties. And the motor sector has been doing that. Uh, if you look across media sponsorships and non-media sponsorships, or more traditional sponsorships, I should say, you'll see a whole range of car brands in there. And gambling too. Um, you know, the, the Euros recently, our analysis around the Republic of Ireland games only saw seven... Uh, I think it was around 7% or 11%, I should say, of adverts were actually betting related or gambling related. I think the spend was 20% of the total TV spend. I think that was actually one of the first sold out categories, wasn't it? uh, It RTE advertising. It was just a a race of people were expecting a a real uptick in in match related betting and what what better place to to reach those uh, potential customers. Absolutely, Laura. If you think about what where the gambling companies uh, are targeting consumers is obviously around sports. It's an obvious point. Um, but they are looking to capture them as well on digital. And sports um, is complemented then by a very strong digital content strategy, which the gambling sector has been very smart on using as well. Actually, around um, the Euros, 90% of people said they were going to watch at least one or some of the games at home which gives, in, gives you a very interesting place to play with digital, when around 43% of those people who are at home are also using second devices, which I think is surprising. I would have thought it was higher, but it's, our research in the Euros Insider said it was around 43%, 45%. And that gives, suggests a rich place for targeting people while watching sport, which is a nice fit for, for gambling, obviously. And you see this sometimes in, 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 in the content of the uh, sponsorship stings and the uh, spot advertising. A betting uh, company isn't, isn't going to not have... Uh, a smartphone, you know, in the ad, it seems it's going to be there, the, the, the pack shot at the end. Or, or even I think there's one UK company that has a bunch of lads on a couch all with their smartphones. I don't, you yeah, know. well, you know, in Ireland we have um, 75%, which stretches to over 90% for 16 to 24-year-olds. Um, so, you know, you can basically say we all have smartphones, we all engage them. 50% of internet usage is estimated to be on mobiles now. Um, and when you break that down into what people are actually doing on their mobiles, um, 16 to 24-year-olds or the younger demographics, upwards of 16% are actually purchasing on, making purchases on mobile. So, of course, it's a very uh, rich, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very good medium to be on and it sits very well gambling. And it's also very reactive. You know, I suppose uh, all, all, all sponsors try and do this now. Uh, you know, smartphone habits means they can be more creative and, and faster off the mark, you know, when they're reacting to sporting results. Yeah, and this is this is actually, it's great fun as well, to look at this area as well as very interesting because um, brands who are very nimble in this space and to use classic marketing cliched jargon who plan for the unexpected can really reap rewards Um, and the Euros again a great example would be Iceland who weren't a sponsor who had no rights to be affiliated to the tournament or any team but really made hay this is the retailer retailer, Iceland the the, the, the frozen goods retailer not to be mistaken with the football team who they absolutely should not have associated with um, (laughs) really made the most and were very clever with their social media strategy 
reacting to the shock results. Obviously, being beaten by uh, beating England and so on, but also closer to home, Carlsberg did an excellent job, in my opinion, in our opinion, uh, around the activation of the Euros with some very uh, smart, reactive content on social media. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very important place to play. And we t- I spoke. Earlier, I opened up the conversation about uh, sponsorship being about deeper connections and not being about awareness. And a lot of brands, a lot of sponsors use social and digital to engage people a little bit beyond just the awareness piece which they might get from television. Okay, so, I mean, we're in the middle now of the Rio 2016 Olympics. Uh, The run-up to it has been maybe slightly marred um, by the Russian state-sponsored uh, doping controversy and, and close to home, of course, we've had boxer uh, Michael O'Reilly has admitted taking a banned substance. Do, do things like this, do they kind of tank the Olympics for sponsors? Do they feel it's, there's an extra risk there when, 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 when these stories emerge? Uh, unquestionably. I don't think you could suggest otherwise. I mean, the, it does taint it. Um, sponsorship at its very essence is about benefiting from the image of a sponsored property. That's what it's about. It's about enhancing your image through association with another entity. So it's a hard work, clean victory. That's what they uh, want to And the minute, that that's, the minute that's in dispute, the minute when it's, it's tainted, as you mentioned, you by association have to be very careful. Now, that's not to say that you're instantly are tainted, but you need to have a strategy and a plan in place to avoid that. And the smarter sponsors do that. So... Um, for example, we're, we're, we're in a year, not just the Olympics, let's face it, we're in a year where we've seen an awful lot of negative press, a negative association with the likes of FIFA, um, the Athletics Association and so on. And it's been, a, it's been an interesting time to watch how sponsors deal with that. Um, you know, you could argue it, there's an argument on both cases to be decisive. You know, a brand that acts decisively and cuts ties with an association or an athlete can be seen to uphold its values and can get the benefit with that. However, if a brand such as um, Nestle or Adidas, who pulled out of this association with the Athletics Federation, their funding that doesn't go into that sport directly impacts the kids and the children who are benefiting from that, from that association. So it's a very difficult situation for sponsors to be in. But certain brands uh, are entering a zero tolerance area with this now and are being very, very careful. OK, so, I mean, the, the IOC is uh, is is you know, probably seen as one of the most protective rights holders when it comes to its trademark, or at least that's the perception maybe I have. And you mentioned Iceland earlier doing a slightly unofficial association with the Icelandic uh, football team. But, you know, do the, do the, do the kind of protection uh, efforts that are made by these, these rights holders, does that simply prove maybe that they are quite, you know, resilient brands, things like the Olympics, that, that so many companies out there that, are, that haven't paid to be sponsors uh, fancy uh, linking their name to their, to their brand? Yeah, there's a famous Rule 40, um, which has been spoken about a lot in the build-up to this game and in and previous games. Um, and Rule 40, if you're not familiar with it, essentially is a, it's, it's a rule or a set of guidelines for brands that are not official partners of the games as to how they can, or in this case, cannot speak about or associate with the games. And certain ru- words like Rio, gold, medal, etc. are ruled out. Um, but really, for sponsors who are official partners, they have to still activate to get the most out of it. Um, so yes, it is. Uh, there is very strict guidelines around the Olympic Games. There's no commercial exposure in the venues, for example, that you'd see at World Cups and so on. And it does add to the prestige of the Olympic Games. It is an unbelievably strong brand. It has it's going through a very tough time at the moment. But there's arguably nothing, no greater sporting brand or organisation out there. And it'll continue to drive significant premiums for association. Advertising revenue for these games alone in markets like the United States has already broken records. 
Um, now, unfortunately, it looks like viewing figures haven't followed suit, which does point to potential long-term problems. So um, it, is, it is a wonderful uh, brand. It's a wonderful tournament and, and, or, or event, I should say, and sponsors will continue to race to be associated. And Electric Ireland, who are, of course, the sponsor of Team Ireland, uh, I was talking to them before the Olympics, and they were saying... Uh, it doesn't matter so much if the Irish athletes don't, you know, win medals, even if, you know, the ones who are expected maybe to win medals don't quite get to the top of the podium because their whole campaign is it, it's the power within. It's all about the journey uh, to get to Rio, the, the hard work and, and the effort, as I mentioned before. But uh, my suspicion is that <laughs> a few goals, <laughs> even one gold perhaps, uh, would would uh, do them the power of good? Yeah, it'd, be the, it'd probably be the, the the icing on the cake, or the as it, so to speak. But you know, you have to plan at the very beginning of these sponsorships. You have to plan for the worst case scenario, and that's a smart strategy of Electric Ireland. In fact, you know, at home in Ireland, in this market, there's been very little activation around the Olympics. Electric Ireland has been really the only brand that's done anything on, on a local level. Obviously, they have the Team Ireland sponsorship, but they've been very, in my opinion, been very very good at what they've done. But yeah, of course, success is what you're after. But having a strategy, having a, a plan that allows for all events is, is the smart thing to do. So um, the, just moving on now to the GAA, because I could, can't really talk about sponsorship without talking about the GAA. Um, you know, the All-Iron Finals typically in the list of most watched programmes every mm-hmm. year. Um, there's a huge amount of activity around GAA throughout the year. It, you know, is, that, is it going to be as valuable in the future as it is today? What, what does it have to do to sort of protect its long-term future? It's again. It's a very interesting time for the GEA. This summer alone has been a very interesting test for the championships and for the GEA. When you consider the Euros and the Olympics and the major sporting events, and yet again the GEA continues to hold its own. Now there is a perception out there that attendance levels are down, and that's not good. And if that continues, it it has got potential to be damaging. But sold out Crow Park last week. Um, continued uh, renewals of their partners, which is no better litmus test than that. Centra signed up again in 2019. Uh, new sponsors, Shore come in as statistics partner, AirGrid in as timing partner, uh, Volkswagen just today announced a new program, the GA through Sevens and Junior Tournament. Um, the allure of the GA is not going anywhere. It is the national game. It does what exactly what you would hope it to do from a sponsor's point of view. It gets you into every community in the country. Um, it's a really authentic, legitimate uh, sport that people feel very, very passionately about. And if you understand that and you have good sound insight as a sponsor and you activate it say for example as the AIB have done so well or super value then you can continue to reap rewards it's a very busy space there's a lot of brands in there activating around GEA um, and that with that comes um, the requirement for better and smarter thinking in terms of how to activate it but the GEA will continue to be the power force in Ireland um, with you know obviously the IRFU and and so on close behind it um, so the allure will stay. But, you know, the, the perception around attendance of, of late hasn't been good and hopefully it will be addressed. So finally, I just wanted to kind of ask you about TV rights because the GAA, their next deal is coming up for tender soon. Um, there's going to be changes ahead for the Olympics. Uh, there's changes recently for, uh, for uh, in, the, in, in uh, soccer. Um there's been some suggestion maybe that rights holders who take money from pay TV uh, providers and, and telecoms groups so they get the big check, but maybe they're sacrificing a little bit in reach uh, the, the, the size of the audiences that they reach and that this might actually undermine the, the value of, of, of the property for the, for the sponsor. Um, how do you feel about that? Are sponsors losing out because of 
the money is being taken from elsewhere? Yeah, I, this question is not a new. This has been around a long time. Um, you know, BBC losing the, cha- the Open Championship in golf. It was like losing the crown jewels, as they would describe it. Um, and it, to, truthfully, it, it, I think it really depends on the sport. It depends on, on what's of most benefit. Um, is it the awareness and the growth of the game? Is it vital funding levels that come in? Um, as I mentioned earlier, it's a very interesting time for broadcast rights in this market. I think we're going to continue to, say, to see new departures. I mean, the splitting between the rights of the European Championships between TV3 and RTE was significant, was, was the first time it ever happened in this market. Mm-hmm. And who won? We all did, the viewer. We all benefited from uh, really great uh, coverage on, on, on both, on both uh, stations. So um, it's an interesting time, and I think we're going to continue to see the breakup of what we would traditionally associate. And you mentioned the GEA. RTE have had that since inception. It's massively important to the RTE and, and vice versa, I'd argue. But that's going to be challenging now looking into the next few years. A lot of competition for these uh, very valuable uh, sports properties. Um, thank you very much for talking us through that, Jamie Macken. And that's it for this week's edition of the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Barry O'Halloran, Mark Paul and Jamie Macken. Thanks also to Gary White, our sound engineer, and to producer Declan Conlon. Until next week. <laughs>